Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 33. We're recording on Thursday, December 19th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, this is our last show of the year. It is. And it feels good. Yeah. It feels really um, good. Things are slowing down a little bit, but we still have a lot of stories to talk about. Um, But when we come back on the flip side... Uh, we're going to have some uh, wrap up. We're going to have some guests. Both of you and I will be doing some traveling mm-hmm. um, in January, but we're going to have some good guests lined up um, and get started. To another. This, I guess we've also been doing this. We started what, May? We started in May, 33 May, weeks 33 ago. 33 weeks ago. I guess that makes sense, episode 33. Um, but it's been a great year so far, and uh, thank you all for listening, and I ho- we hope you all have great holidays. So I want to get that out of the way because got, I've got rants. We've got, we got, both but, got rants hey, in us today. Before we rant, though, oh, let's yeah. talk oh, about good, something good call. happy. Yeah, let's have happy. Uh, one of the things that we do at Book Riot, and uh, now that we are more than Book Riot at Riot New Media, is that we donate 2% of all of our revenue. Um, that's before any expenses uh, to charity. And we uh, have a charity that is nominated and selected and voted on by our readers. And so for 2013, uh, our charitable partner has been Girls Right Now, which is a New York City-based organization that pairs uh, teen girls with adult women who are writers um, in a mentoring program. And they do all kinds of really uh, interesting and fascinating and just really great work with young women who want to become writers. And they are in their 15th year right now and girls right now is conducting a really big holiday funding drive so we want to first thank them for being an incredible partner for us this year it's been great to work with them Uh, but also to let you know if you are looking for a literary place to throw some extra holiday uh, generosity and a few dollars you should check out girlsrightnow.org that's w-r-i-t-e right Uh, and just again a big thank you to them and also if you have an organization that you um, are already supporting and that you believe would be a good partner for us in 20 14 will be putting out a call for nominations so you can watch bookriot.com for that in early january yeah probably early to mid-january we're going to take nominations and then um, we'll select some finalists and do some voting and choose who the 2014 charitable part will be and we we sort of um tend toward i think we have in our our call that literacy and social justice are kind of the things we're looking to support mm-hmm. if we can but um all interesting and worthwhile charities are at least worth talking about so yeah that's a good call girlsrightnow.org all right so follow up to last week's show a little bit um <laughs> are, you, are you still fired up? Because yeah, I'm pretty fired. Fi- up last I mean, I'm week. fired. And, and I should say too that some of my, especially about the Canada thing, was only semi-serious. Um, the d- bestsellers diversity thing I'll get to in a minute, but I had a lot of follow-up on both things with varying um, levels of uh, sophistication and uh, uh, I guess I would say um, civility in, in reaction. And, and I'll just say, I'll just say generous. <laughs> yeah, I'll just say this about Canada Monroe. If you think that 90 copies a week of Monroe in Canada being sold is all right. I can't help you. Like, no, I mean, that's, that's your opinion. I don't happen to think that's enough. That's my opinion. Living treasure, great writer, whatever. So that's, all, that, that's the crux of my complaint is like, how can I explain this 90 copies 
a weak number of Alice Monroe because um, it doesn't seem like enough for me. Um, and some people, one thing that people threw out as an explanation, which is a plausible idea, was maybe Canadian libraries are just much better. They're socialist country, so to speak. Um, they have higher taxes, better publicly funded infrastructure for things like that. Like, so I did a little research. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. They do spend more money, but not. It's, it's no more than 30% more per capita. So that doesn't, I mean, I don't think that explains all of it. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have more libraries per capita per se. They spend more on the libraries they do have. Um, so anyway, that's all I'm going to say about that. If you think 90 titles a week for Alice Monroe is about where it should be, I disagree with you. We can get into the reasons why that might be the case. Um, all of those reasons, I think, could be addressed in some way. And, and the other thing was the diversity in the New York Times bestseller list. So the stat we threw at you last week, someone did a study of the 2012 bestsellers and the top 10, just the top 10 week over week. And only three out of 124 um, were people of color. Um, and my point there is, and it was the title of the show, We Are the Jerks, I was trying to refocus the conversation back on book buyers. Um, a lot of people wanted to blame sort of the structure of the publishing industry. Uh, I think that is part of it for sure. I'm not going to discount that at all. It's a systemic problem. It's a systemic Nobody's problem. questioning that. Yeah. But I think on a lot of times with these kinds of issues, especially when it comes to sexism or racism or diversity of any kind, um, we see stats like this and we want to blame the system, right? Forgetting for the moment that, A, we're part of the system, and B, that saying it's systematic still means we can take some action um, in a variety of different ways. Um, it could be that maybe if you're buying books for someone this holiday season or for their birthday and you're looking at what to buy them, maybe you consider, is there something of a diverse title or author that I can give instead of the thing I go to immediately? You know, there's a lot of different things. You could look at your own reading. If you don't think it's a problem, I'm going to disagree with you about that, but um, that's not really the, the case here. And here's the other thing I'll say, and this is a larger point. But look, I'm a white, straight guy. And the way I think about it is this, and it's been very helpful for me since I was an undergraduate and first starting to think about race theory and things like this. I think of myself as a recovering racist, homophobe, and sexist. It's never going away for me. I've just been, you know, I, I grew up in, in a society that was. And so I've got to spend the time I can thinking about it, much like an alcoholic who's recovering has to think about how they can deal with that particular problem. And thinking about it and saying it out loud is part of it. Um, and so that's why I get particularly interested in these kinds of things, because I'm working on it myself. Um, and, you know, just to be aware that anytime someone tries to explain away the reasons that our society works sex sexistly or racially, um, that's part of the problem. So the first thing to say is, man, that sucks. What can we do about it? I don't think the reasonable response is to say, well, there's a, there's a reason for that. Yeah, you know what the reasons are? Sexism and racism. Um, and let's start with that kind of conversation. So uh, in all the fun I have with this sort of stuff and trying to press people's button, that's kind of what I believe. Does that make sense? I hope that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. You know, I think um, this situation, when we're really faced with the numbers about how women are represented in books that are sold and particularly how minorities are represented in books that are sold, um, it's, it is undeniable that sexism and racism are at play. And it's truly a situation where you have to, you know, I'm going to trot out the cliche quote, but it's true. Um, be the change that you wish to see in the world or be the change that you wish to see in publishing. And if we want to see more people of color um, acknowledged for their work in literature and appearing on the New York Times bestseller lists, the, the only way to make them appear there is to buy their work. Especially on our side. Only I mean, way yeah. to do it. And if you don't want to buy their work, then you need to encourage your libraries mm -hmm. to be spending money buying their 
work. And that is how people get up there. And once you're in those upper echelons where you're a New York Times bestseller, where your books are um, even approaching that, that's when publishers really start to take notice and they throw more marketing money at the books. And you get into that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy cycle then of we spent a lot of money on it, people are aware of it, more people buy it. So then we spend more money on it, more people are aware of it, and more people buy it. Um, but it's, it is not okay that women and minorities are less represented on those lists. Yeah. Um, it's book buyers, everyone who buys books who are to blame for that situation and that's you and that's me and that's probably most people who listen to this show and if it's if it's not okay then it should change and the way to change it is for us to do it yeah and uh, just this morning my darling michelle on the way out the door we were talking about this and she was saying and i think part of what she was saying is right is it marketing dollars to go towards what publicists and sales reps push at barnes and noble and other places and what appears on the table at the front mm-hmm. and all of those things are true um, but even in the face of all that individual buyers can still make informed decisions. You don't have to be subject to the table that's in front of you, especially if you're listening to this show. If you're listening to this show, you're not the kind of person that's just buying whatever's on the front table. Um, So, and, you know, we think about these things all the time. That's something I think both you and I care about for the site and what we do is Mm -hmm. um, thinking about these issues and encouraging people when they can to think about them as well. So that's our follow-up. These aren't issues that are going to go away. I'm sure there'll be other stories that come up and it's part of a longer um, and super complicated conversation. But I guess Um, long story short there is that if you don't think it's a problem that women and minorities are underrepresented on these kinds of lists, then this is not going to be a show you're not going to like that. Yeah, you're not going to like that. You're not going to like that. You're not going to like us a lot of the time. And we should should do our sponsor. We're we're past what we should do. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. We have Random House Audiobooks is back this week uh, with their site, tryaudiobooks.com as our sponsor. Perfect timing since we're going into the holidays. Uh, If you are traveling, you're going to be in the car with your or, uh, your partner or your kids or by yourself and you want a story to keep you company, um, especially if you're new to audiobooks, you can hit up tryaudiobooks.com. You can listen to clips of several titles for a bunch of different niches, including crafting, fitness, travel, uh, sci-fi, adventure, and uh, family-friendly kids stuff. You can also use their personal audiobook assistant where you put in the length of time that you're looking to fill and it will recommend audiobooks that fit that. So you don't have to sit in the driveway like I occasionally occasionally do for 20 or 30 minutes extra uh, to finish the book that you're listening to. Uh, they have great recommendations and they do keep it um, pretty tight. You know, the nice thing about Random House is that they publish a bajillion books, um, but they help with the curation here. If you put in, you know, five hours for a drive with family friendly, you're going to get three or four recommendations. You won't be overwhelmed. Um, and when you click on those, it'll take you to randomhouse.com where you'll have a variety of choices from where to purchase or how to download. Uh, those books. So thank you, Random House Audio and tryaudiobooks.com. Uh, and if you're giving it a shot, uh, let us know at podcast at bookriot.com what your experience is like and which audiobook you pick. Uh, we're both big fans of audiobooks, and so we'd love to know. Absolutely. Tryaudiobooks.com. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. All right. So it's the end of 2013. Already we've said um, that it's been a year of the subscription service for books, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And we've got a late comer, a late entry into 2013, and it is called Entitle. And it's an ebook subscription service that's a little bit, well, actually quite a bit different than Oyster and Scribd, which we've talked about before, which are more kind of like um, Netflix streaming services, mm-hmm. where you unlimited for a selection, um, and as you finish them, they sort of disappear and go away. Entitle is, I guess, the, the closest um, approximation I can think of it is how Audible 
um, structures their subscription, where you pay up front um, for X number of titles per month, and that, that paying up front gets you a discount, and then every month you can pick. Right, um, and what that's, you're getting. that's how they're branding it as well. When you go, you can go to entitlebooks.com and it says right on the cover uh, or, on the, you know, on the homepage, ebooks for less, you know, up to 65% off of various titles. So the, the first uh, level of account that you can get is $14.99 a month and that gets you two ebooks. Um, you download them and you get to keep those ebooks even if you cancel your account. So that is, that is like audible. Um, it also sort of reminds me of those like the DVD of the month clubs. Yeah, or, or they, book of the month clubs back yeah, in the day. Yeah. Right, where you paid that flat fee and then you got to keep whatever the product uh, was after the fact. And that's a little bit different from the streaming models also. Like with, um, with Netflix, we know that things cycle in and out of Netflix. And so part of the deal of having access to stuff unlimited is that you've got to like watch Footloose while Footloose is available because you don't know if Footloose is always going to be available on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you were to download, uh, Stephen King's Dr. Sleep, which is available on Entitle, you would have that. You'd have access to it even if you canceled your Entitle subscription. So if you're a person who wants to have uh, permanence with your ebook purchasing. This is um, a, an interesting option that's not available through Oyster or Scribd or some of the other um, developments here. It's also worth noting this is the only one of these new uh, ebook subscription services that someone other than HarperCollins has jumped on. That was a big for. bullet point for me. Simon <laughs> Harper, and Schuster jumped on. Yeah, board too. Simon and Schuster has tried this one out, and uh, we were and HarperCollins has as well because as we already you know have established, HarperCollins is awesome at experimenting. Uh, with new technology and new ebook stuff. Uh, you and I were talking about on Twitter that the best explanation probably for Simon and Schuster having done this is that it's lower risk since it's not all you can eat. Right. Publishers seem to be really afraid of the all you can eat model. Yep. Yeah, so. I think there's a couple of things interesting. I mean, A, it's another three data points is a, you can align, you can fit a line to three data points, right? Mm-hmm. So that's maybe even makes it more of a trend. Um, I think the idea that you can own it for some readers, that's going to be very important. I think some things people don't like about Oyster and Scribd is you read it and it goes away and you don't get to sort of put it in your digital or print shelves, which frankly is something a lot of people like. We talked about that before about print books. That's one thing people like about print books. I don't know about enough about the psychology of this particular kind of commercial model. Like you said, the DVD of the month club mm. or book of the month club where you it's kind of cool in a way, I think, to be forced to buy two things a month. Does that make sense? Mm. Um, to like, you're you're gonna have to you're spending this money anyway, so pick out a couple of things to read. Um, Michelle and I used to do this thing um, back when CDs were more of a thing. Uh, we we would find that if we didn't go out of our way, we would just listen to whatever we listened to in 1996 over and over again. <laughs> so we said this thing on every month we'd buy one new CD. We had to buy one new CD. It didn't have to be something that was new, but just one new CD to us. Mm-hmm. And it was a way of kind of making us stretch our musical tastes and library uh, rather than just sort of buying things as they come, which means you're just going to narrow and circle and circle and circle back in on your pre-existing tastes and habits, right? Yeah, so well, this is a kind of a trick, a hack, so to speak, mm-hmm. to get you to buy at least a couple of books a month and pick some things out to read them. Does that make sense as a, as a thing? To people I, do? I, I guess so. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know very many readers who need to be reminded or forced to acquire new books into their TBRs. Yeah, you I know, guess that's true. Uh, the thing that we constantly hear from our readers and listeners is that they have way more books on the list than they'll ever be able to tackle in their lifetime. And they're stacking things up faster than they can read through them. So, mm-hmm. um, 
I think it's an interesting idea. I just don't know if uh, if folks well then who is this for then? Do you think that extra push? You know, is it the owner people? I think people I want to have it. It might be the owner people. Um, I I I'm I'm not sure. I think it might be the owner people. I think the uh, desire to to have permanent possession of content that we engage with is a thing that is going to like disappear in the next couple mm-hmm. of decades. I agree. I agree with that as well. Um, so I just don't know that that's a, like you're building a new technology product. I don't know that you want to build it around people who uh, like have a set of desires that is not compatible with moving forward in technology. Um, it seems to me that, you know, Netflix, Oyster, Spotify, um, the streaming services are acclimating us to the fact that we don't get to keep things. And that's part of the deal. Um, and frankly, like that's fine with me. Um, I hardly ever reread books. I guess if you're a rereader, the keeping Mm -hmm. thing is useful to you. If you're a person who really likes to go back and revisit text and it's not so much about just, you know, having possession of the book, but being able to reaccess it when you want to, that would be useful. Um, I, I got a trial run subscription of entitled. This I week haven't looked I, at it yet. I should say I poked at it a little bit. I should say the website is really beautiful. Entitlebooks.com is gorgeous. Um, unfortunately the app does not have the same quality of experience. The, mm-hmm. um, the iPhone app is, is pretty clunky. Um, if you, and if you're familiar with how audible works there, there is a nice analogy there for audible. You have to go onto your audible account, you know, online on a computer and select the books that you want and download them. And then the next time that you log into your Audible app on your phone or your device, you can uh, access those. You don't actually make in-app purchases. Um, but it's all pretty slick and easy on Audible. If you're in the Entitle app, you have to go into your account to find the books that you have downloaded. Then you have to tap that book um, and then do a couple other taps and clicks mm-hmm. to move it into your library where then the next time you open the app, it's available to you in your library to continue reading. Um, the in-app discovery for titles is also not fantastic. Um, they have a lot of great listings and ways to search for books on entitlebooks.com. Um, that does not exist within the app. And so if you're primarily a mobile device user and you want to be thumbing around on your phone or uh, on your tablet to find what you're going to read next. It's not a great experience mm. on the app. The actual reading experience itself, and uh, I got The Flamethrowers by Rachel Kushner, which I know is one ah. of uh, your favorite books. Yeah, I'll be interested to hear what you say about that. Uh, the reading experience is fine. You know, it's words on a screen on my iPhone that I swipe through the way that you swipe through them on Scribd or on Oyster or my Nook uh, app or, you know, any of those other ones. That itself is fine, and the formatting is just fine. But it's everything else that's, that's around it that uh, I don't think is awesome. Uh, so it sounds to me like the easiest workflow for it right now is you and you sort of manage your library through the desktop right and then you pick up your phone or tablet or whatever and you read what you've loaded with it but the actual process of using your tablet or phone to get something new on there or find something new is is not ideal right is that that a good summary it is it is not ideal okay Um, a couple other things to know about this um ipad iphone android kindle fire interesting nook and kobo which is the biggest spread we've seen And so the first far. time that one of these apps has been compatible with an Amazon device. That's right. Uh, the Kindle Fire, I believe, runs on a, an Android kernel. So, uh, But it, Amazon controls what apps can go on the Kindle Fire. It's interesting that this one um, can. I'll be interested in that. There's an interesting backstory for those of you. I mean, if you're listening to this show, you like insidery publishing stuff. Am I right? Yeah, I'm right. Um, <laughs> 
this this company got a big funding round. You know, it's a startup. Five point like, yeah, five point three million dollars, and a lot of that money shows in the website after the you know nice graphics and scrolling things and beautiful. Um, but also, the person who funded it chose to remain anonymous. One backer who chose to remain anonymous. That just gets all of my wheels spinning. Like I love stuff like, and I hate it. Right? I mean, I uh, we had fun kind of yesterday on a on a. A, a, a company call speculating about who it might be. I'm not going to do that here because it's embarrassing and I'm uh, not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but who is who is this? Who is this that's backing this particular thing? You know, I just thought of one other group of people that might like this. And so it's 14.99 for two. That's the beginning mm-hmm. plan. Yep. So that your book is essentially 7.49. Your ebook. Yeah. Right. Well, and a lot of these are first run titles, and that is cheaper than you're most likely to find for most likely titles. So maybe these are people. If you're someone who buys a bunch of ebooks every month, you can guarantee yourself a bit of a break even over a Kindle or something like that. Yeah, that's a good point where um, the other subscription services that we've seen roll out this year are primarily backlist right. titles because this looks more like purchasing. I think publishers have opened up um, some of their front list to it. So like you can get Dr. Sleep through Entitle and you can't get Dr. Sleep through Oyster or through Scribd uh, yet. So if you're buying a lot of front list, you could probably find some of them in Entitle, but it's not a huge selection yet. Um, you know, I'm just thinking that a Entitle slash and plus Oyster slash Scribd for 25 bucks a month. It's not. That's a nice little combo for 25 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Two front list titles and all the backlist on the other ones you can read. That's a pretty good combo, um, especially if we get some more publishers on board with both of them. That's going to be very compelling. Um, and- so. Now I have a brief rant. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's, I'm ready. <laughs> I need to rant for just yeah, a moment. You, she, was, she was pre-gaming this guy, so get ready. <laughs> I've, been, I've been spinning my wheels about this. Um, you know, in the last couple of months, we've talked about Oyster and we've talked about Scribd, and now we're talking about Entitle and these new ebook subscription services on the show, and that's because the show's mission is to talk about what's new uh, in publishing and what the new developments are. But uh, I don't know if it's happening to Jeff, but every time that we it start does. talking it about does. these things, I get tweets and a few emails and yesterday we had a reader uh, or maybe a listener post on the um, Book Riot Facebook page, hey, don't you guys know that this thing called Overdrive exists and people can use it from their libraries and get audiobooks and ebooks for free? Yes. We know <laughs> yes, that. We, yes, we know that. It's not new, uh, which is probably why we're not talking about it. If Overdrive developed something new, we would certainly uh, share that on the show. But the thing that I really want to rant about is the tone that uh, the tone that comes along with all of those things, which is a scolding. Why are you talking about buying books instead of talking about libraries? And you know, we talk about libraries here on the show a lot. Um, a we bunch love of our, libraries. We think we they're do, good. Of course, we love libraries. A bunch of our contributors at Book Riot use Overdrive, um, get a lot of their print books from libraries as well. We, you know the nice thing about having more than 50 writers is that we have all sorts of reading habits and book acquisition habits represented. Um, But let us all resolve for 2014 so that I don't have to rant again, that we're going to stop this business of judging where people get books. I am not sending uh, library users judgy emails and tweets (laughs) about how, you know, you really should be supporting independent bookstores in your community Mm -hmm. instead of going to your library. There seems to be like, there's no way to win this conversation. So here is what I would propose. I will get books where I like to get books and I like to write in my books, which libraries frown upon. 
I also really enjoy digital and I find that the digital experience is better through Oyster than it is through at least my local library. The user experience going through Overdrive is not fantastic here. If your yep. library has a good one, I am really happy for you. Mine does not. So I'm going to get my books where I want them. <laughs> Jeff, I think you should get your books where yep. you want them. All of you listeners, you should get books where you want to get books. And let's all just be glad that we don't, are don't pirate books. them. Don't pirate them. Don't pirate That's them. That's not right. sanctioned. Don't pirate them. Be cool in how you get cool. your books and be legit. But let's all just be glad that people are reading books and let's talk about the cool things that are happening and the books that we're reading and back up off the judgment about where and how other people uh, get their books. This is all I want. Yeah. I'm going to play the Rebecca part that you normally pay when I get on my little rant and just <laughs> bring it down just a notch. I think that response comes out of, I think you're right, but the motivation for the response of don't you know you can do something like this at the library is, I think people are afraid of losing their libraries. I think that's what it is. And if all if these things really do compete with libraries and we stop using libraries and funding goes down and they, something they care about will go away. I understand that, but we've had buying books exist alongside libraries before libraries existed as we know them in America. So I don't know that any sort of new retail or commercial model for books is going to threaten what libraries do. The threats to libraries are not coming from book commerce. They're coming from budget cuts and local politics and changing demographics and where people live in, diff in different locations. So I don't think that's I don't think that's it necessarily, but I understand the thing of like my library is something I care about. They do some other service, use that instead of this because libraries will exist. Um, I wrote a post a while ago. Do you remember this one about the private lending libraries? Do you remember that? Yeah, post? I do remember that. Where there's there's some that exist in New York. Um, you know, you think about it. All academic libraries are essentially private mm -hmm. lending libraries. It just depends on how you uh, how you pay. But you pay with your tuition. Yeah, you take your tuition instead. And I said, you know. If there were a private lending library where I paid X number of dollars a month or a year and I got a different experience than my local branch of the New York City Public Library, I might consider doing that. And there's several reasons for that, um, none of which are worth going into here. And a lot of people didn't like that idea. They didn't like the idea that I would pay for a premium experience uh, rather than taking um, what was uh, available publicly and to everybody, which I understand. Um, but I'm not going to apologize for, for that one either. So if yeah, you want to I leave guess... us a comment about any of these things, you can always go to the show notes, which are bookriot.com slash podcast. You'll see the most recent show there. Be interesting to hear what you think about that. You had something else to say. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I think I just, it, uh, what it really comes down to is that there's room for all of these mm -hmm. experiences and uh, people who prefer their public library the way that it is. That's great. And if you would prefer uh, a private library that offers a, premium experience for a small fee, then that is fine too. There's room for all of this. And uh, our mission as people who love books should be to be focusing on how we can move the love of books forward, not on dividing between the right. library users and the Oyster users. And uh, if any of you are doing research or know someone who is, I would really be interested in seeing a study about um, how much or how little um, these digital services are a threat to libraries. Um, because all I have is my personal use case, which is that I wasn't using my library for digital before because it sucked. Um, and so my use of a digital service is not in place of my library. It's just a separate thing that I'm doing. I, I tried <laughs> to use my digital ebook lending experience when I was reading for the term of books this year um, mm -hmm. for early 2013. I tried to read all the, the short, the 16 finalists. Yeah. Um, and the problem I was running into is the holds. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there were 50 holds for, I can't think of what it was. It doesn't matter. I think the roundhouse. Um, uh-huh. And I was like, that for how I go, I don't have a TBR, so I'm I'm always in the moment when I'm deciding what to read, and so that was unacceptable to me. That the book I wanted to read right there was not available um, for seven or eight bucks for an ebook or um, Oyster or maybe something like Entitle. Um, I will pay to get what I want to read when I want to read it. Um, but not everyone's like that, and I have um, through through you know fortune and hard work and a lot of things that go into it, the ability to spend eight bucks or 15 bucks on a book when I want to buy it. Um, not everyone does. And that's why libraries exist. And I use my library too for other things. But when it comes to ebook reading, which I feel like is so, this is what I want right now. Um, that was enough of mm-hmm. a disincentive to use it that I'm looking for something else. Um, all right. So it's end of 2013. Let's move on from here. We could go on about this all day. End of 2013, a lot of best of book lists. <laughs> And there's enough of those that we're not going to yep. mention any one specifically. So we talked about our own last time because, you know, we're solipsistic and uh, needy. Um, <laughs> but there's a couple of other interesting book lists or end of year things around books that we thought worth talking about. And one is that The New Yorker, I think they do this every year. I remember this at least the last couple mm-hmm. of years, the literary feuds of 2013. So the yeah. book-related things that people were arguing about. Um, I'm going to do my own wrap-up posts about what I thought the 20 most interesting bookstories were on the site. And I think when we come back in January, we're going to do something uh, similar but different on the show itself. That was really helpfully descriptive, Jeff. It was? <laughs> Similarly, but different. Sim- yeah, right. <laughs> Are you saying it's not exactly the same or nor totally <laughs> different? Tell me more, um, Obi-Wan. Uh, so these were, I don't, they even count them down. See, you can't do an end of year list without giving me numbers. That's They're not, not a, ranked. These are not ranked. Well, but ranked. at least give so I can say number three and you can scroll down to it. This is insane. This is like an animal. Uh, well, the headings are in bold. You can scroll to like the third bold thing. Come this, on. This, come you on. don't want to get me started about the New Yorker's digital Oh, well, that's effort. a really let's good Let's not point. go down that path. So uh, is there anything we want to say about this other than point to people to it? I how is it arranged? It's not alphabetically. It must be a power ranking of some kind. Uh, it seems it's also actually not, it might. It's be. not chronological. It's not. No, because um, uh, didn't didn't flamethrowers come out before the woman upstairs? I don't remember. They were both earlier in the year. So the first item is uh, Claire Mesud or Mesud, who wrote uh, the woman upstairs. Uh, which we talked about on the show last week and which I finished and which has a killer ending. If you were wondering uh, how that turned out, it was fantastic. Uh, her battle against likable characters is the first one. Yeah. And then Rachel Kushner, who wrote the flamethrowers, uh, gave a very interesting and, and smart response to a male critic uh, who called her book a macho novel. <laughs> and was, it was basically like his comment was basically like, why is she trying to play with the boys? She's a girl. And she she wrote about how, you know, you can either be a writer or a female writer. Mm. And if you're a female writer, then there's all sorts of problematic stuff that comes along with that. That happened earlier in the year. And then the third story is about something that happened in June. And then there's Jonathan Franzen versus the modern world, yeah. which happened in September. So it's sort of like roughly yeah, maybe chronological, except Jonathan Franzen versus the modern world is really an ongoing thing. Yeah, that goes back until the moment uh, Jonathan Franzen sprung wholly formed with glasses and stubble from his mother's <laughs> Right, and if he's the Batman of that argument, then Dave Eggers is like really rapidly becoming the Robin <laughs> yeah, of it. We, maybe we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> um, Booker Prize, uh, allowing American judges and... Um, entries that's on here harper lee we talked about on the show versus the county heritage they have that rather than um they have that as the lead in bold i mm-hmm. thought the bigger story was 
trying to get the rights to her own book back. Oh, you know, here's an interesting piece of the story that I didn't realize before the this Monroe County Heritage Museum that she that is in Monroeville, Alabama, where Harper Lee lives and which uh, was is largely related to the story. The museum's website. I saw this is to kill a mockingbird. Can't do that. Monroe County Heritage Museum. We're going to throw a penalty flat. You can't do that. How is it possible that I think it's Harper Collins that owns to kill a mockingbird now? How is it possible that they have not paid whatever they need to pay to get that you? away from that small town library yeah well this place has been around for a while so they could have gotten this in the early days of the internet when you know it was the wild west and you could get coca-cola.com and yeah. sell it back to coke for a couple million bucks and, I, uh, I think the new yorker screwed this up i think the top story there is harper lee versus her son-in-law's cousin mm-hmm. or whoever it was that snitched the um that the rights the rights. away yeah I think so too. And then there's a bit about um, like the least interesting literary feud. I thought of so. Th- I thought this was odd too. Ever is the BuzzFeed books one? Is that? What oh no, I was going to oh. battle over Gore Vidal's estate. Like, okay, oh, another one yeah. of these. Uh, BuzzFeed launched a books vertical recently, and they hired a guy named Isaac Fitzgerald, who runs a, a website called The Rumpus that publishes some literary stuff and a lot of personal essays and, and poetry, um, and poetry, yep. uh, that that kind of thing. It's an interesting choice because The Rumpus is like a really serious mm-hmm. and takes itself seriously website, and and BuzzFeed not so much. Um, and Fitzgerald announced that he was going to publish reviews at BuzzFeed Books, which hasn't started happening yet, haven't but seen not any. negative ones. And like this has been declared as the end of literary culture. Because, In the shock of all shocks, like, newspaper <laughs> critics are pissed off about this. It's, I just... I can't like the only thing that I am less interested in than this is the death of literature because people don't want to publish negative reviews is a detailed delineation of the difference between a review oh, and a God. recommendation, Kill which also now. happens several times a year. And it's just I, like it's just pointless and boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all I have to say about it. Let's just talk about books in interesting ways and not uh, – I'm tired of watching people who do it the old way and who aren't willing to change um, run around in circles of job justification. Yeah. Like, uh, by the- <laughs> can we spend just one minute on that? Uh, yes. Just because I think it is – there's a you know there's an interesting discussion that's not this dude is doing it wrong and shut up BuzzFeed books. Yeah. Um, but I do think the decision not to run any negative reviews is telling because I don't know like – because we don't run that many reviews on the site that we talk about books a lot. And we don't have any sort of um, moratorium or Mm-mm. inclination to tell writers what to do. So sometimes people say something bad about a book. I don't think the 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 damage done by not running negative reviews has anything to do with the death of literary criticism. We're all going to die in a morass of like Miley Cyrus mashups or something like that. I think it's more about what your readers want. That's the thing that would turn me off of like – a prohibition on negative reviews. Because you know what? Mm-hmm. If you have writers that your readers trust and you want to know about a new book, and what are you going to do? If this person doesn't like it, you're not going to cover it at all? I mean, that's the thing I don't well, really understand. You know, that's also the no negative reviews thing is not new. Yeah. And no, like it's you've not said, new. And, and maybe it, this is getting discussed because BuzzFeed is so prominent yeah. and, and visible. And people are nervous um, about BuzzFeed. But- itself of, in a lot of one ways. One of the bigger or one of the better known publications in, in inside the publishing industry is Shelf Awareness uh-huh. and they also do not publish negative yep. reviews. Like you are welcome if you're a, a Shelf Awareness reviewer to write a negative review for them, but it will never see mm-hmm. the light of day and they have their own um, reasons for doing that and uh, at BuzzFeed I'm sure some of it has to do with 
page views and some of it has to do with the way that buzzfeed does coverage although i could see like a really funny gif post of people making terrible faces and well negative views can get traffic like a good rip a good rip job or hash job on something can do traffic i mean so but the like it's just so predictable the way that this conversation plays out at this point and by the time that you have to start writing a defense that explains why the way that you do things is relevant, you're in trouble. Yeah. I think whatever you want to do, like they can do whatever they want. It doesn't bother me. And, but for just in terms of thinking about our own position of, of, mm-hmm. of a site that runs coverage about books, if let's say, what's an, what's going to be the big book next year? That Mitchell, is that the new big book? David Mitchell, Murakami. Yeah. Let's say the, oh, the Murakami. Good. Let's say that comes out in August and every single one of our writers hates it. And if we had a moratorium on negative commentary on books, we wouldn't cover it at all? Like, how weird. It would be weird. I think that's so strange. So I don't know the way um, Isaac uh, Fitzgerald is going to find his way around that. Maybe they're going to find someone to say something good about everything they want to cover. Maybe they're not going to be worried if they think it's weird. Their reader, you know, I think one thing about BuzzFeed readers is, well, I'm not going to get into that. They, maybe they <laughs> wouldn't notice or care if they don't comment on a big book that comes out. That's one of the strengths and possibly weaknesses of BuzzFeed. Um, but anyway, let's, there's only one more. And Deborah Solomon versus the Rockwell family. I don't know any about uh, This is about nonfiction. This. So um, she implies that Rockwell may have been gay. Deborah Solomon wrote this big 500-page uh, biography of Rockwell. And of course, the family, I don't know, of course. Is that fair to say? I don't know if, of course, the family was going to be pissed off about it. But they were pissed off about it. Um, uh, you know, hmm. I don't know. I didn't find that particularly interesting too. So I, I, I've got a, I've got a list of about seven or eight things I think is more interesting than that, but um, I won't tip my hand more than that. Yeah, we'll talk about some of those on our year in yeah. review. Uh, okay, let's not spend too much time on the next one. But so Amazon released its best-selling books of 2013. So it's not a best of list. This is just the facts, ma'am. The books that people bought the most. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't tell you how many books each one sold, but Amazon never not. tells you that. But they do tell you these are the, and I think you can look at Kindle books, kids and teen, teen, Kindle, break it all down. There's a f- few different lists. Mm-hmm. I think the one we're most interested because it best represents the kind of diversity and sort of mode we're in. 100 print books of 2013. Because um, Kindle books gets into self-publishing and a lot of other stuff that we don't talk about on the site uh, as much. Um, and, you know, a lot of, Titles you're going to recognize, some you're going to don't. It's a couple surprising things. Boy, these Duck Dynasty people can sell a book. Holy Moses. Um, there are three of them on the yeah. top 100. Um, there's a lot more nonfiction and cooking books and self-help. I just forget how much of that is publishing. Oh, um, yeah. Did you look at any more, anything you were going to say about that? Those are the, the couple of the takeaways for me is self-help, just- cooking, and um, Duck Dynasty. Of all the, like, because Amazon sells so many books and they have all this data, these lists are always interesting because, like you were saying, it's a reminder of how many, like, how many books there are out there that we don't even hear of, but that people are buying and reading en masse and, um, and sort of where the where the interests lie, like, and it's also interesting to see Cheryl uh, Sandberg's lean in up next to yeah, Dan right. Brown's Inferno, up next to Bill O'Reilly's Killing Jesus, up next to Khaled Hosseini and the Mountains Echoed, which are the first um, four that show up on this page for me. Um, I have the same experience. Like once a month, I go through Edelweiss, which is a cataloging service where publishers share their catalogs. And that's where I'm looking for what's coming out. And it never fails. And I'm like, holy Moses, there are a lot of books about religion. So many. (laughs) Religion and food. Those are the two that um, 
I guess people are both interested and worried about if we're going to do go that model of what people buy <laughs> right. in both cases. Interesting yeah, and, and, worried and about. some of them uh, like Stephen King's Joyland. That's interesting to see on this list of top 100 print books. I'm sure it would be there anyway, because the new Stephen King book is cause for celebration, but that is the book that he released only in print. Uh, mm-hmm. It's sort of a throwback pulpy hard, hard crime story. Um, it looks like an old fashioned uh, pulp fiction work. And, uh, so it's interesting, you know, see that in the top 100 print books and remember that it was only available in print. Um, I might be having a snobby moment, but I'm wondering if the duck dynasty books, like those are gifts, like, you know, sort of, Mm, I think you're having a snobby moment. (laughs) Okay. Not, and I mean, not to, uh, not, I think people are buying them. I'm not going to assume that they're buying them not for themselves. Can't do it. Can't do it. I mean, maybe they are, but how would we know that? I don't know. No way. You just you want it there to be were, true. I understand. There were like three Duck Dynasty gifts uh, given out as a at the White Elephant gift exchange oh. for my husband's office party, and so that like at least in my circle, which maybe uh, yes, anecdata. sure, maybe that's snobby. Anecdata. <laughs> I'm just gonna stop. I will stop. You mean liberal knowledge workers aren't giving those earnestly? I'm shocked, Shinsky. I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm done. All um, right, I'm done. All right. Let's just, you know, let's get ourselves into a different kind of trouble. What's next? What's next? Oh, this is, I thought this story is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, org. It's a nonprofit and they say, they call it a twist on the writer's residency. So what they're doing is they're buying and renovating houses in Detroit and then giving them away to writers. To come, them away. come live homes. and write and work in these homes. And um, I, I think it's staggering. It's so great. And Toby Barlow, who is an author, uh, is one of the, the heads of this. It's his name that shows up mm-hmm. on the homepage. I think this is so great. They have three of them right now that they're in the process of being renovated. You can go to writeahouse.org um, and you can see the, the houses and where they are. Cute little bungalows that I'm sure they're going to look great when they're done. Um they're going to start accepting applications this spring. Uh, and if you want to s- apply, you submit a writing sample, a resume, and why you think you should do it. And so Detroit gets an influx of yeah. writers and creative culture, which um, not a thing that Detroit is known for. Whether, no. they ha- whether they have it or not is a different question, but that's certainly not part of Detroit's popular uh, reputation. And writers get a free place to live. Right. Um, and they can... It also gives an incentive to rehab. I mean, Detroit's housing market is notoriously mm-hmm. depressed, and so it rehabilitates some of these places. You know, this is something that happened. I mean, one of the long stories of New York um, is that writers and artists and creative people live where it's least expensive to live, and then slowly that area becomes more attractive, and then other people move there, and then the artists and creative people who don't make a lot of money can no longer afford that neighborhood, and they go somewhere else. Yeah, it goes. It's all. I mean, Soho that happened to, Park Slope that happened to, Bushwick that happened to, Williamsburg that happened to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is a. It's kind of kind of jumpstarting that uh, trend. So go to writeahouse.org. I think it's a fascinating project. It's yeah, very it's... interesting to see how it goes. And uh, I hope that we'll see some writers who do this, you know, write about the experience and, and sell This is just, it's a cool creative idea. And there's something for everybody in here. Writers um, are often unlimited budgets. And so this is uh, also just a, it's just cool. I yeah. have no other things to say about it's it. It's cool. Go take a look at it. If you're a writer to cool. look in the move. And, 
If you are the person who tweeted to Book Riot about how this was a great idea, except for the location sucks, then I will just say to you that you don't get to complain about it when someone wants to offer no, you a you don't free get, house. No, you don't get to complain about if it. If you don't want to move to Detroit and live in a free house, you don't have to. But this is a cool thing, and I will not let you poop all over it, no. Totally agree. Let's do a little bit of book news, and then we'll do our sponsor in another right. cut. We're going to run long here. Book news, a couple of things. I don't have this on the show, but Hillary Clinton, um, her memoir is coming out in June. And all my bells are ringing. Yeah, so that's a lot of us. A lot of us are interested in that. So that's one bit of book news. Another bit of book news: a new dragon tattoo book is coming. How may you ask? Because good old Stieg, um, rest his rest his soul, is gone. Um, but the literary estate has contracted out another writer to continue on the Millennium series. Yeah, there were supposed to be like yeah a, a whole bunch of them. Right, and there's rumors that there was another draft of a fourth book that his ex-wife or partner had i've forgotten the details um but this is kind of like what happened with james bond um turned over to a different writer i think this is great i think this is fun yeah people want uh, more of these people do want more of these um it sold uh, the Elizabeth Salander series has sold more than 73 million copies worldwide you james Um, just snorts at that (laughs) right but that's still pretty big big deal staggering um when Dragon Tattoo was at its height, I was on vacation and there were like six people at a time reading it around I, I remember the that pool. Too. And it was or it was the book that you would see all the time in airports. And that that's huge for publishing. It's huge for um, readers. And uh, we've been talking about it a little bit on Twitter. And we, we're hearing from people who are really excited. They yeah. are ready for more of these stories. The so, publisher found um, the new writer's name is David Langerkrantz. Um, who is a journalist and author who's published several novels and biographies. So kind of like in the Larson mode himself, who was a journalist and author. Mm -hmm. Um, So apparently they're happy enough with that guy. And um, I think that's something to look forward to. It doesn't say when the new... August Uh, 2015. 2015. Okay, so we've got a while to wait. Summer Uh, reading for you, 2015. Yeah, that makes sense. Really, it should be May 2015. Anyway, that they know what they're doing and I don't. Uh, Memorial Day would be really Another bit of news. (laughs) Joseph Gordon-Levitt has signed on and is attached to do something with a film version of the sand of Sandman by Neil Gaiman. He's and this- signed to be a producer. The rumors are he's going to direct and star. He himself on Twitter said, that's not confirmed yet. I'm just attached to do something. I don't know what you're going to do with Joseph Gordon-Levitt in this movie if he's not going to be in it. Um, but I think they probably are looking for a screenwriter. And before he commits to be in it himself, he probably wants to know who's going to direct and write it. That's my guess of what's going on And here. I hope that Tumblr is buying extra server space right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> the combination of Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Neil Gaiman doing a thing is just going to explode yeah. fandom in really interesting and fun, I probably heard. ridiculous ways. But uh, Muppet Arms are waving all over the internet about this already. And uh, pretty cool. Yeah. So Gaiman came out with Prelude. This year, which is the origin story of Sandman, which the original Sandman series doesn't have. And I remember thinking at the time, because Sandman has long been rumored as something that could be a movie franchise. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking when that came out, I was like, boy, if they wanted to make a movie now, they'd have the origin story, which you want for these franchise movies, yeah. right? Like where do where does Dream come from and all the stuff, how the mythology works. Very interesting, trippy, deep mythology could be a big series. So that's something to keep an eye on too. All right, let's do our sponsor again. Tryaudiobooks.com got both the spots because that's how awesome they are. So everything Rebecca said is true. Tryaudiobooks.com, they can go, you can go search by activity, length of time you're having to do. 
I'm going to kind of wrap this in with one of the big stories of 2013 and something we published on the site that they, Rachel Smoltahall wrote about. The 2013 is the year she loved, she learned to love audiobooks. And man, are we hearing about audiobooks a lot. Both you and I are listening to a lot more. Um, people are really trying these out, and trytobooks.com is a good way to do it. We did a story that thir- Hachette said that their audiobook sales were up 31% this year, mm-hmm. which blows everything else out of the water in terms of growth. Ebooks, crushes, print, adult books are down, everything else is down. Um, but audiobooks are up by a third year over year. And that's a big story. And I think it's, as people, we've said this before, have smartphones and good data plans and good Wi-Fi at home and becomes easier and easier for people to download directly onto their phone audiobooks. They're really finding that this is something that's easier for people to do. You know, as much as we like our mobile phones and our tablets and our devices, they're just some things you can't read, print while doing like the dishes or mowing the lawn or driving or out walking. And this is a way you can fit more reading experience into your life, which for me has been a boon with two young kids and two jobs um, and just being a nut job in general. It's been a real saving grace for getting more of the reading that sustains me into my life. So try If you haven't tried an audiobook before, even if you have, this is a great place to go find some things to start. So thanks so much to try and random house audio for sponsoring the show. And if you're really on the fence or you just want a free audiobook, because you should, uh, tryaudiobooks.com right there on the homepage has a place to click to get a free download of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Right. Uh, which sounds perfect to me. And if you had to uh, be in the car with your kids, also a great family-friendly thing. Uh, definitely been a huge year for All right. audiobooks. So we got, we've got kind of two groups of stories left. We only got time for one of them. You want to pick? Ladies' Choice? Which one do you want to go with here? You know, I feel like it might be time for a trip to Methodology Corner, Jeff. Okay. Let's take a trip down methodolo- Methodology Corner way and two related studies. Um, no, I'm sorry. They're, they're studies about reading in kids. Mm-hmm. And I think they both have the same problem. Um, so the first one is a study published on courts, courts.com showing that the difference in reading, sort of trying to figure out the stat that they found about so 15.5% of kids who read daily but only on screens are above average readers. Sounds okay, right? Sure. 15, but 26% of those who read daily in print or both in print and on screen read on above average level. So nine percentage points more overall or almost more than 50% higher, depending on how you want to think of it, of those who at least do some of their reading on print uh, read at an above average level. And so... Quartz goes on in this long thing about how interactive is killing narrative and bundling and reading diet. And I think you and I, we've done, we've looked at these studies enough that we know there's actually maybe something else that's more fundamental here going on. And I'll, I'll pitch it and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. There's one study that we've seen before and it burbles up every now and again. And it's about if a kid lives in a household that has more than 300 books, I think was the number that their academic achievement is sharply higher than those who don't. Mm-hmm. And so people say, it just goes to show that you need to have books in the house for your kid. Well, and just the mere, just the just presence, the presence of any books just, at all. In the you know what? Is, if you put a book under huge. your pillow at night, <laughs> you get smarter. When I think the more subtle and nuanced response is the kinds of households that A, can afford a bunch of books and B, care about books enough to have them around and keep them around are the kinds of environments that foster academic achievement, right? That's right. kind of the, that the presence of books are correlative, not causal. 
I think there's something similar going on here. Does that make sense with this study? It does. We're constantly talking about who are the people in this sample and what are the confounding factors that we aren't, that aren't being discussed in these studies because they don't make for as catchy headlines. Right. And I think that's absolutely um, what's going on here that uh, kids who have access to a lot of books and who read a lot are more likely to have high academic achievement. And of course, we want to say reading makes kids better. Right. <laughs> Having books in your house makes kids better like that. It, it feels good um, and it feels true to readers because um, we've experienced many of us have experienced that ourselves, that reading has made us better thinkers and um, better at doing school stuff. But the real piece there is that um, before you can have a house that has a lot of books in it, um, or that has a tablet device with a bunch of ebooks downloaded to it, you have to have the disposable income to buy those things and to bring them into your home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has to do with uh, socioeconomic factors and a parent's level of education and any number of other stuff that's a lot less glamorous um, to talk about and doesn't make for these catchy, um, confusing correlation for causation <laughs> right. headlines. You know, but like, like publishing will be out of headlines if we have to actually start writing headlines about real factors for things. I mean, this, the other thing we don't like to deal with, we'd rather it be as simple as get kids print books uh, and they'll, you know, that'll normalize their relative academic achievement. The naughtier, more difficult and intractable position though is it's it's poverty and culture. Right. I mean, it's it's not it's not complicated, but it's super hard. Right. It's systemic in the yeah. in the same ways that we were discussing problems with um, sexism and underrepresentation of minority writers earlier in the show. This is systemic. It's not you, you can't solve the problem just by dumping a shelf of books into every child's home. That won't do it. Books are not the thing that cause um, academic achievement to improve. Uh, you start by eradicating poverty, which, you know, not easy. Uh, but you start by working towards those things to raise the average, uh, you know, income, the, the access that people have to books to bring them in to their homes. And so now uh, all of our tree-hugging liberal tendencies are, are right. showing, but I really believe that's, that's how this problem gets solved. And uh, it might sell books and it might make readers feel good to have the headline that bringing books into your home is related to academic achievement, but that's just it. It's related. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, one reason that charities and um, organizations like Girls Right Now are something important to us, because they do try to attack some of these problems at an earlier stage. Um, so this other study that's related and has the same problem, um, which is basically saying that if you read, things are good. This one was a survey of leisure reading in 10 to 16-year-olds, also in the UK. These are both UK-based studies, I should say. I don't know if we mm-hmm. said that before. Um, that reading for leisure, uh, either books or newspapers, during the ages of 10 to 16, accounted for an increase of 14.4 percentage points in vocabulary, 19.9 for math, and 8.6 for spelling. And again, I think this is some of the same problem, Yep. that the kinds of families in home life situations that encourage leisure reading, value education, um, and are more likely to have educated parents who, not necessarily a predictor, but will foster and um, encourage education on the whole more than those who don't. Um, and it's the same problem. It's the same problem, I think. I don't. It's not adjusted for educational level of parents um, or household income or anything else like that. So I, I take all of these with a grain of salt. Every single one of these needs a, a giant grain of salt, like maybe the grain of salt that would um, 
salinate the Pacific Ocean. Even. Yeah, someday we will launch methodologycorner.com and we'll just point out yeah. problems. In we'll probably studies. have like four or five go-to problems. And this is A1, right? Mm -hmm. Not accounting for educa uh, education of, of parents and socioeconomic income. It's, it's unfair. Um, it's unfair in a lot of ways, but that's, that's the way it is, I think. Well, and that's why it's important to talk about. Right. Yeah, right. Because your kids aren't. If your kids aren't reading for pleasure, then they're not going to be smart. Well, maybe, but it's also the case that, again, it's just it's a sign of the kind of atmosphere you grow up in that you read for leisure, not necessarily that this is a thing that causes you um, to be better. I thought it was interesting that your math scores go up more than your spelling scores. That was one that I thought was odd. Like if you read books and newspapers for mm -hmm. leisure. Your math scores actually go up more than spelling, which I thought was odd, but I don't know. I, don't I can't know. I'm even a, begin to guess about I'm like, not the, an educational the theorist. Yeah, that right. at work there. <laughs> right. I have no idea. Um, so we've got a story about independent bookstores. We'll save that. That's maybe a good story. I think, actually, you know what? That's a good way to start the new year. The new year, because that's on my list of. Um, Stories of interest from 2013. So we'll, we'll save that one. And for also, next time. I don't have anything to rant about with that story. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do a little bit. Okay. Uh, not to rant about, but just like, again, as we do, we put wet lettuce blankets <laughs> on every seemingly positive story that comes up because the world is complicated and sad. Wet lettuce blankets, Jeff. <laughs> I think we have a show title. I think so. Um, so we're going to end our 2013 right there. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Reading Ape. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Find show notes, bookriot.com slash podcast. If you want to give us some feedback, send us a link, comment on something we've done, um, explain how we've offended you or how we've edified you. Podcast at bookriot.com is our email address. You can find everything that we do and write about um, bookriot.com. Particularly, you know, we, I don't think we've said this. We publish a lot of different stuff, not just stuff that's on our site, but we link to a bunch of other news items. A lot of things we find that appear in the show, we'll post on Facebook and Twitter, various types. Both just search Book Riot on Twitter or Facebook. You'll find us right there. Um, end of year call for reviews and ratings on iTunes. That's the number one way to help people find the show if you find it helpful. We've had a lot of people tell us that they've been recommending the show to their friends, and we thank, thank you, you thank from you, thank the bottom you, of you, our very you. small Grinch wet lettuce hearts um, <laughs> that you're doing that for us. Anything else we need to tell the people? Uh, we need to thank Random House Audio and tryaudiobooks.com for sponsoring uh, this show, and please do let us know if you try out audiobooks for the first time this holiday season. And also, in all of our show notes, there will be uh, a link to a short, like, seven-question survey that you can take that helps us just to know a little bit about you, uh, including your confounding factors, and to help <laughs> us <laughs> identify the best sponsors for the show so we can keep bringing you relevant, interesting stuff like Random House Audio. Yep. So thank you guys so much for listening to the show. We hope there are lots of books under your tree or in your dreidel or where, whatever your holiday present delivery device is um, that we hope there's a lot of great holiday reading for you coming up and we'll talk to you in 2014. Yeah. Happy holidays. <laughs>